Welcome to Doc Student 101, a podcast where we discuss the necessary skills and unique challenges of doctoral education with your hosts, Dr. Lania Rademacher, Dr. Peter Williams, and Dr. Scott Self. Hey, you guys. Hi, Scott. Good morning, Scott Good morning. And Peter. So glad to talk to you. I think we've decided to, to take a, to do a little theme for the next couple of episodes um, related to theory. And even though we typically talk about um, the soft skills and relationships and things like that in, in doc programs, I think one of the things that happens a lot for doc students is that we make a, a series of assumptions that students pick up um, maybe in a, an inductive way important elements and if uh, and I I will confess that there were parts in my PhD where there were many of these uh, I think inductive messages that I don't pick up because I don't pick up inductive very well at all I, I usually walk around feeling like I've missed a series of memos so uh, one of those areas that I think is really important and, and uh, it's not just me I know you guys think it's important is this idea of theory and how to integrate theory, what theory is, what relationship theory plays with one's dissertation, and how that might be different depending upon what kind of dissertation one is doing. So we thought we might have a conversation over the next uh, couple of episodes about theory and kind of demystify that conversation a little bit. As a way of getting that started, I want to tell a story. I've I was at a conference in Prague, and I visited um, a museum. It's the Zhidoska Museum. Uh, And there's a display of a bunch of children's drawings and, you know, things that five-year-olds would draw. And the thing of it is, those look like any other five-year-old drawing. I have five-year-old grandchildren, and they draw me pictures, and they all look pretty much the same. Um. And these pictures look the same. And you might wonder, why are they in a museum? Why would somebody want to look at these? Well, they do look the same as every other five-year-old's pictures, except they're pictures that children drew as the Nazis are ridding Prague, specifically ridding the Jewish quarter of its citizens and putting them on trains and taking them to concentration camps. And it's in this context that children are drawing these pictures. And that, be, that creates a very different view of the data. What you begin seeing is this juxtaposition between the innocence of the children and the horror of the Reich and the, and the Holocaust. And that becomes a very powerful lens uh, by which you understand the pictures that you're looking at. Uh, and if you know the Holocaust, and if you know it well, and if you know what's happening, now those five-year-old, five-year-old's pictures look very, very different. And I know that's not a complete understanding of what theoretical frameworks are, but that is, a th- I think, a way of beginning the conversation of understanding what we mean when we say you're going to bring theory is this becomes a way in part to add meaning to what we're looking at, don't you think? Yeah, uh, it's, it's a way of looking at the world, any aspect of the world, the children's pictures. I mean, you have an implicit or tacit 
theoretical frame, which is kind of like the lenses of your glasses that you look through at the world. And, and if someone says, someone explains to me, these are pictures of that children drew, you know, during this time period, then suddenly I'm open to seeing some of this contrast of innocence and horror, whereas I may not see it before. Another good example of this is, you know, this way that uh, theory helps us see the world slightly differently, which is both confining and expanding at the same time, which is an interesting thing to do both at the same time. But, you know, when you learn a new word, suddenly you hear it around. You hear it. It's like, it's not that it suddenly came into being in your environment. It's that you just weren't aware of it. And so theory can help a person see see the world, see more complexities in the world, see different things, different aspects that you didn't think of earlier or previously. So, yeah. Yeah, I think how we're going to um, look back at 2020 and years to come and everything is going to be through that framework. And I, you know, as someone who's a singer, it's especially poignant because um, we, we can't sing together now. We can't sing in church choir. We can't sing in our group choirs. Uh, I had a conversation with my choir director last night and we're having in-person services this Sunday. Um, and she asked me to come and sing. We're having uh four people, you know, three people sing, her, me, and one guy uh, spaced out on the, whatever you call it, stage. I'm not good with church terminology. Uh, At the stage, and the congregation is not going to sing. Uh, We're going to together sing a number during offertory, spaced out at our corners. Um, The church has uh, contracted with someone who is very specialized in infectious disease prevention to set up the procedures of temperature taking and mask wearing as you come in and there's only one entrance door and there's an exit door and you can't go in and out the same doors and all this. Uh, So it will be very interesting. But the whole idea of church choir and singing, and I think of all the Zoom choirs and the Zoom music, it puts, when you say singing in 2020, it's going to be a different picture of what that is than it was in 2019. And that's what I think of theory. Well, there's this cliche that's going around in these times uh, that becomes the framework by which you understand anything that someone's trying to, you know, in these challenging times becomes the framework. You could just say COVID and somebody gets it that, oh yeah, things are different right now. It gives a way of understanding it. it. Yeah, and even part of our responses to these times, to the COVID, to the pandemic, to um, the various social responses to the pandemic, and and our attitudes towards it are are, are, are pretty much guided by our implicit theories. So, yes. So when we when when you come into a doctoral program, suddenly you hear people talking about theories all the time, this theory, that theory, the other theory, and they seem foreign and out there and things like objects I've got to learn about. But theories are inside you. And many of the ways you see the world, like I mentioned previously, is you know, through, through your 
through theory, through your schema of how the world, how you think the world works. And part of the goal in, in doctoral research anyway, is to surface those theories and say, make them explicit. And that's a hard yeah. reflexive task because here's how I think the world works. Not just how I want you to think I think the world works, but this is how I interact with the world because our interactions with the world are based on our theories of how the world works. Yeah. I think that's very important that we're not, you know, the, the, the theoretical frameworks that come into inquiry are not, they're not something that are created ex nihilo. They're not come. They don't come from nowhere. They come from someplace. They come from the interactions and, or, or you know, and, and not just in, the social sciences, they come from interactions of physical phenomena, right? And understand, it becomes patterns by which we understand things. But those patterns, if they don't already exist, if we're not, if, 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 they are, if they're not organically existing within the phenomena, then they're useless, right? Then it's, then it's like trying to put on a pair of glasses to hear a concert better. It just doesn't make any sense because... Uh, they, they don't relate to, you know, they don't relate to the data. So um, I think that's really important that theoretical frameworks as often as, um, as rare as they are, or I guess I was going to say as often as we use them, but as, as rarely as we use those terms in our everyday lives, they are constantly a part of our everyday lives. And we sometimes don't even recognize they're operating. And then the process of inquiry helps us explore explicitly what those might be. So would it help to talk about what theory is? Yeah. Well, why don't we wrestle with the definition a little bit? Because um, I will confess that I think a lot of us, again, inductively experience a lot of different definitions and they probably are all facets of the same phenomena. But let's talk a little bit about how you think about defining theory. You know, I didn't think about theory much before my doctoral work, except that in contrast to practice, but, you know, and I would say things like, well, in theory, it's a bit in reality, you can, as if those are really, really very different um, things. And so I, I realize now that, you know, that's just a matter of speaking in a way, but it's also inaccurate um, because it demotes theory to some superfluous academic pursuit. <laughs> right. And, and we, in our vernacular, we tend to, we tend to treat the word theory as not, not verified. Right. We tend to say, well, that's theoretical as, as opposed to real. And yes. exactly that, that's, that's distinction between yes. the two is false. Yeah. False I hear person. that a lot from, uh, especially uh, students who are new to uh doctoral work, um, that theory has no relevance in their practitioner world. And what I usually tell them is that, well, most theories that we use in doctoral work were created by um, scientists observing the world, which is what you are going to do. And so theories are not static. They are fluid. And as we know more, if, as we gather more observations, we change and evolve those theories. They don't evolve us. We evolve them because we're trying to explain human behavior. We're trying to explain what we're seeing in the world. And we're saying, does this theory work? 
is this what I'm seeing? And sometimes it's yes, and sometimes it's no. But the theoretical framework can help us to explain what it is we're seeing. And I think that leads to another related point. You know, you, you emphasize theory is fluid. It helps us explain what's going on in the world. The other thing, corollary to that is theory is not true or truth or false. Theory is useful or not. And sometimes it's useful to some degree until we gather more evidence and realize, ooh, yeah, that doesn't really work anymore. We replace it with uh, better theories that are more accurately describe what's going on in the world and help us predict how to improve our practice. No, I really appreciate yeah. that because that's different from proving or disproving a theory and, and gets more into that conversation of how theory is a reflection of our cultural worldviews. It's reflective of our epistemologies. It's reflective of our paradigms. It's reflective of a bunch of things. And when those things shift, um, then our, our theoretical frameworks begin to shift as well. And that doesn't mean they've been disproven. It means that they're no longer useful. That's a great... Yes. Or, or they may be useful in a different way. I think about some of the classes that I had in my doc work on uh, art education theory, music education theory, uh, and child development theory, and how those things have changed over the centuries as we know children more, we've observed children more, we've observed teaching children more, um, and how you know par parts of Piaget are very helpful. Parts are not. Parts of Dewey are very, very helpful in understanding practice, but parts are not when you understand the, the environment and the context in which Dewey was writing and created his theories. So um, I think um, that's a really important point. So one of the, the, the definitions of theory that has really helped me is one by a scholar named Bacharach who wrote it back in the late 80s in an article that maybe we can share in our um, show notes. Um, but he talks about the different components of theory, and he's talking from mainly a positivistic standpoint, but it's a good jumping off point about what theory actually is. And it's more than just description. It uh, tries to get at cause and effect relationships, because if theory is going to help us in practice, we have to understand how things interact. And by things, of course, in theory language, I'm talking about variables, constructs that are measured or variables, and the relationship among those constructs and their uh, respective variables, uh, the description of that relationship is kind of theory, and it's bounded by uh, either context or time or demographics or or, or a variety of things that we may not have imagined, but it, it's, it's bounded. And that relates to, well, how generalizable is it? And it, it, if this theory holds up here and now with these folks, talking about social sciences, we're dealing then with humans, right? So uh, that doesn't mean it's a universal theory. It may be very useful in this context or in very similar contexts to help us explain and uh, 
improve or uh, our, our practice, but it may not be helpful in other contexts across cultures, for example, across, you know, socioeconomic uh, strata. There are all sorts of boundaries or, that we could imagine around a theory. Yeah, and Linnea, I'm interested to get the to get your uh, perspective on the other side of that. That sometimes theory is useful, even if it doesn't seem on its face directly replicable. Like in the context of your work on mentoring, right? So, some colleagues and I explored the mentoring relationship between a faculty and a student in the doctoral process. Um, and we really, we did a collaborative autoethnography on our response to students um, when we felt the relationship was going south, right, deteriorating. And there is a, a theory for that, but it comes out of the psychological literature. Russ Bolt and his colleagues were looking at romantic relationships, um, and we were not. We were looking at a very a kind of a professional relationship between um, a, a faculty mentor and a teacher in an online relationship. But still, those relate. We all know that those relationships can go south, and the relationship, according to the literature, between the faculty mentor and the student is critical to their success and persistence in the doctoral work. So we wanted to apply that theory to our study of the, the relationship in that doctoral dyad. Um, and we, there are four subconstructs of that. And um, basically Russ Bolt was looking at phases of deterioration, what happens. And of course the most toxic is you leave the relationship. And um, you know, what we found was we did not have the same subconstructs in our relationship, partly because of the structures and partly because one of the results that we found, and we, we all four of us are from different um, uh, subject matter areas. I'm from education, and another one was from psychology, and another one was from um, women's issues. And so what we found was that we really uh, tried to, all of us, to, to a person, work to develop empathy with the student because uh, we couldn't leave the student and we didn't want to leave the student. We wanted this to see the student complete. So there was a little bit of a difference in what we found looking at human behavior versus what Russ Bolt and his crew found 50 years ago looking at human behavior. And that was very interesting to us. Yeah, I think that gets at uh, using one theory in one area to try to understand something in another area. That's a great starting place because it gives you categories of stuff to look at. That's what that theoretical framework helped you with the phases of deterioration in a relationship. So uh, also a number of years ago in organizational studies in the late 80s, Connie Gersick uh, did some um, qualitative research on uh, group and team development, particularly work teams, because there, there had been previous work about phases of team, and most people are, are familiar with this um, uh, norming, storming, forming, deforming, or whatever it is, you know, the things that rhyme. And, and those were existent at that time, but she went in with kind of a clean slate and just observed and observed and participated with a variety of work project teams in different industries. And she came up with what she called um, time and transitions in team development. And she bought to, 
to help her explain what she th- saw, she borrowed from evolutionary theory, this idea of punctuated equilibrium. And it was, it was a way that uh, in evolutionary theory that describes, you know, changes in species, there's this punctuated event that usually there's kind of an equilibrium then this big event, a crater, you know, a massive explosion, an ice age, an asteroid or whatever that shifts thing and then to a new equilibrium. And that's what she found in, in team. So she borrowed some from a completely unrelated field um, to explain her findings that were similar. So it was sort of a, an analogy, but she didn't go in with that theory. She went in and so in an inductive study and looked at the data and found the best explanation is, oh, right. right. Punctuated equilibrium. Work teams go along kind of motoring until halfway point, then suddenly they realize half our time's gone. You know, we hadn't done half the work. And so they have this radical shift and they they shift to being very task oriented. That's fascinating. Um, so the, yeah, that is fascinating. It is, and 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 I hear I hear what you're saying. It's not like you go in saying to yourself, "I'm going to see if I can't make some connection between Darwin and organizations." But what happens is you begin to discover that this other theoretical framework is a good way of understanding the data in front of you, right? Organically, it helps you make meaning of it. Um, Right. In her case, she didn't have a, a pre-existing theoretical framework. Mm, yeah. She had a phenomenon that um, she wanted to explore, and she explored it and found that it didn't really, you know, jive with, I don't know, who is it, Tuckman's uh, forming, norming, storming model. It didn't fit that. So she went, well, what does it fit? How can I describe what I see? And she borrowed from evolutionary theory to do that. That's a different way of using theory in research, actually, than what we often uh, do as we're testing hypotheses that are extracted from a particular theory. Yeah. Um, I do want to I do want to put a plug in at the end of this episode. We can probably talk a little bit about it again later, but I do want to put a plug in for the idea that um, engaging with theory requires a great deal of rigor. And I'm not sure that you can pick up um, the complexities of, of a theory from back of a cereal box or from other people's empirical work. I mean, I think one of the lazy ways to do this is I see, you know, eight different people talking about Bandura. And so I'm just assuming then because I read these other articles, I know what Bandura is about. You need to go read Bandura and not just, boy, I had a, I was working with somebody who said, Oh, I'll go read that tonight and I'll talk to you, talk to you about it tomorrow. Okay. Well, we can talk about it tomorrow, but this wasn't Bandura. This was Desi and Ryan. You can talk to me about it tomorrow, but I need you to wrestle with this. I need you to think about it. Let it f- ferment and and make it your own. And that doesn't happen. Uh, that doesn't happen overnight with Desi and Ryan in self determination theory. It's complex, and there are lots and lots of layers. And you know, just reading an article that summarizes what a theoretical framework is about may not be sufficient. And so I really want to invite students to think about uh, digging deeply and don't rely upon the inferences that you think 
help explain a theory that happened from other people's empirical research as they're summarizing it to understand their their data. Yeah, I think that's really important. I've on several occasions written some a comment along the lines of I don't think this theory is really what you think it is. <laughs> Like the Princess Bride, I do not think that means what you think it means. Yeah, something like that. It's, uh, uh, yeah, I, I remember it, and you know, with uh, you know, not only Bandura or Desi and Ryan, uh, but with uh, the other theories that are really like Festingers. Yeah, yeah, that that's a roughly, even though they know the names of it, it. it it's like, this is a very shallow, one-line interpretation description of what it is, and you haven't really framed your research. You've just kind of layered this on top to satisfy me. That's right. That's right.